When we're born, we simply perceive. We could call that a state of meditation. Being present, alert, aware, tuned in, but not using the intellect, meaning analyzing, dissecting, judging, right, wrong, should be, should not be, and labeling everything. But what do we do? From the time we're, we're like one years old, parents want to give the extra edge in life, and they start teaching the kids, look, 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 apple, one, red, box, and we're so proud of it because all we're doing is showing them pictures and asking kids to label everything. But probably from the age of two on, all of our education is built around memorizing the labels and then relabeling and rememorizing and meditation, biohacking, all the things that we're talking about here, breathing and so on, is really about enhancing the quality to perceive. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that there's a new clinical trial of digital meditation at UC San Francisco. And the researchers there figured out that they could make a personalized digital meditation training program that improved attention and memory in healthy young adults. And this is kind of cool. It worked in only six weeks and... It's harder to hack healthy young adults because they're already healthy and young. Taking someone who's 40 or 80 or 180 and making their memory work better might actually be easier because there's there's more wiggle room. <laughs> and it's something else to take someone who's already young and strong and make them younger and stronger. And they created something called MetaTrain, which is a closed-loop algorithm that tailors the length of the meditation session to the ability of the participant so you don't feel like a total loser when you're first trying to focus on your breath and you don't know how to do it. So it's a time-honored meditation technique, but the first time you do it, it can be frustrating. So they actually modify that to make it easier for you. We're talking randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial with 59 participants, 18 to 35. And the magnitude of the effects on attention and memory, which they did not expect because of the healthy young adult thing, were similar to what have been seen in previous studies of middle-aged adults after months of in-person training or intensive meditation retreats. And that's pretty crazy. They focus on breathing techniques, meditation instructions from Jack Cornfield, and regular check-ins. Six weeks, higher performance for people already at their peak. Oh, wait a minute. They weren't at their peak. They just thought they were. Are you at your <laughs> peak? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I'm still not at my peak. I'm looking for it, though. So if you can help me find it, keep on going. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. 
There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. All right. It's a big week. My new book, Superhuman, comes out next week. And this week, our guest today has her book coming out. And it's a book that I actually wrote a foreword for. And Superhuman is something you've probably already ordered. I mean, if you like the podcast, you like what I do, if you get a lot of value in an hour of time, you know that Superhuman is going to take you, what, three, four hours, five hours to read, but you're going to get a huge amount of value there. So you probably already ordered it, but the book that you're going to learn about and the techniques you're going to learn about in the show today um, are all about meditation and breathing and developing consciousness. This is stuff that I've spent a lot of my time doing. It's in five years of daily practice and so much that I wrote a foreword uh, for the book. Now you're going, what the heck is Dave talking about? Who could this be? Our guest today is a former federal prosecutor <laughs> who mm. discovered something called Vedanta by accident and went on to become an internationally renowned teacher of its dynamic practice and deep wisdom, highly sought after self-awareness coach, trainer, and speaker. She's run programs on meditation in 35 countries, companies like IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, the World Bank, Morgan Stanley, and of course, India's IIT. Her name is Radshri Patel, and you're going to really like learning what you learned from her today. Her book is called The Power of Vital Force, Fuel Your Energy, Purpose, and Performance with Ancient Secrets of Breath and Meditation. Long title, but I actually learned breathing techniques from Radshri, I think almost 20 years ago now in Sarasota, right. California. Uh, so it's been a while since we've, we've connected. Uh, we reconnected about a year ago, and she told me about her book. I've read the book, and it is accurate and real and interesting enough so that I wrote the foreword. Radshri, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here, Dave. You're an unusual human, in, in part because of your background. You're, you're born in Uganda, grew up in India, but moved to the U.S. when you were a kid. So you're, you're kind of super multicultural, and you've been to 35 countries and taught meditation everywhere. And your spiritual master teacher is Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, who's yes. taught you know, millions of people. How did you go from kind of bouncing around federal prosecutor to suddenly working with Sri Sri, who's, you know, a, a very revered figure? Well, I, I think at some level, my life, like many people's lives, has been um, where the universe plays a hand in it. Uh, as you said, born in Uganda, just because India was a British colony, my parents ended up there. And then because of Idi Amin, my dad escaped as a refugee, landed in New York, I got a job as a prosecutor in Los Angeles, so I left New York and came to L.A. I was new. I didn't know anybody. I wanted to meet people. And I saw a sign that said Pandit Ravi Shankar. It's a common name in South India, and I thought it was a sitar player. Perhaps you've heard of him, I'm sure. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the musician. Um, thinking I'm going to a music concert, I landed up in 
a breathing slash meditation program. And well, if you've traveled as much as I have and, and the number of cultures as you're mentioning, even by that time, that's back in 89, I decided to stay like, okay, I'm here. Curiosity, I think, is the, the biggest gift of all in life, no matter what you're doing. And so I was curious, lucky for me. I stayed and I discovered the tools and techniques, which, well, at some point, you know, I had the honors to teach you back in Saratoga a long time ago, as you said, 20 years ago. So you, you kind of accidentally stumbled into it. Knowing what you know now and having read the book, was it accidental that you stumbled into Sri Sri's thing that day? Well, I, I think there's multiple levels of, of reality. So on the surface, I could say it was accidental. But then on another level, looking back, I think it's what I was meant for. I mean, what I do today is I travel around. It's what I teach. I make a difference in my life, in other people's lives. And I can't think of anything else I would rather be doing. So perhaps it's not an accident in that level, you know? You're a little bit humble about this. You've established 600 meditating centers or meditation centers around the world and you've done 20,000 hours of coaching and done 1500 workshops so you've been like a tireless guided missile for meditation for lack of a, a just in terms of having a really big impact Th those are some massive numbers <laughs> well i i love that i appreciate what you're saying it is true i have been a, a guided missile um, it's a great word for it, actually. Maybe I can put that under my name as a title, guided <laughs> missile. You know? But yeah, I, you know, I left my career, not planning to leave my career. I went to India in 89 because the master, Ravi Shankar, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, he invited me, he said, come to India. And I was just looking to kind of hang out, meaning, okay, before I get saddled down with family, kids, house, 2.2 kids, you know, all of that. Let me go to India and maybe do some trekking in Nepal. I was just sort of opening myself up to some new thing. I went for eight weeks and I didn't come back for five years. And I was teaching three courses a day, you know, a couple hundred people each session. I went from India. I didn't come back for five years. I went from India to Europe, South America, throughout Asia, Canada, and now I'm back again in the U.S. So, uh, you know, I don't know how it's all happened other than to say it really is about vital force or energy, which you are so familiar with, with what you do, in a sense. Did you have to give up something to do this? I mean, traveling that much, did, did you... Uh, did you want to have a family? I don't know if you have a family, did relationships. It, it seems like traveling for five years without ever coming home would sort of create, everyone know who's done that is a little bit ungrounded. Uh, did, yeah. Did, what happened there? So, you know, you, of course you lose, quote, lose something in order to gain something, yeah. but I wasn't feeling the pinch of it. I mean, like I was just like that idea of a missile. I currently I'm married um, in the middle there, I thought I would never want to marry. I had my friends, I had family, I was fulfilled. I had not had that sort of interacting with people, but in terms of a marriage or a long-term relationship, it just seemed like, no, I, I didn't know if I would want it. But then the time for that came also, you know, to settle down with that. And I still continue to travel. So 
I want to say it's a balancing act at some level, but I kind of don't see it that way because a balance implies you lose something while you're leaning towards one side or the other. And I think that what was propelling me was at any given moment what mattered to me the most. And I was moving in that direction. And and to your point, you know, sometimes, well, who likes traveling? Airplanes are not the most fun things. Um, I'm fortunate in that when I do travel to countries, I'm hosted by families. So I really immerse in the culture and the country and the essence of what happens in each of those countries. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, at some level, it's a, a gain and a loss, like everything in life, but I wouldn't trade it. I, I want to share how I got into Art of Living. Going back a long time ago, sometime in the 90s, uh, I was an engineer, product manager kind of guy. And one of our engineers uh, from India, and by the way, I think almost every one of the companies I work for was founded by so- someone from India. Uh, and of course, software developers in Silicon Valley. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've developed a, a, actually, I really like the, the culture that I've been exposed to that way. Uh, and one of the guys said, Hey, Dave. I know you're into some kind of weird stuff. You should come to this breathing thing. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and I'm kind of a you know young, arrogant Westerner. So I show up and there's uh, white robes, there's flowers, a little bowl of fruit. And there's this room full of people and we're all sitting on the floor. And I'm like, I'm not sure this is for me. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to join a cult. Because in the West, we've been programmed especially 20 years ago. Like if you told someone you meditated, they wouldn't take you seriously as an executive. And now it's- I know what you're saying. Yeah. So, so there was a little bit of a, and I'm comfortable, I'm an engineering family. Like we're rational, you know, like we're, like we're, we're better than that kind of a mindset. So I'm like, oh, and, and I went to the class, but I never did it because it just didn't land for me. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't in my language. Oh, it was in English, but it wasn't in like the, the language of my engineering brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and- a while later, maybe two years later, the CEO, one of the best CEOs I've ever worked for, B.V. Jagdish, um, of the company, it was called Netscaler, and I'd worked with him previously at a company called Exodus. This is the company that held Google's first servers. It's a really important um, innovator in the history of the internet. And he said, Dave, I'm going to this executive breathing thing. I didn't even know it was the same kind of thing. You should come. It's in Saratoga at this really nice house. And so I show up, and it was the same training but the way that you taught that training uh, was was somehow different. And, and I don't know if it was the way you explained it, but it was more about performance and more about just like making your body do what you wanted. Some of the ancient biohacking, and I would say the Ayurvedic, uh, the Vedic traditions, traditional Chinese medicine, uh, ancient Buddhism, like all the ancient lineages all were working on biohacking. Like what are the mm-hmm. things you do that make you work better? Um, mm-hmm. And it connected. And I was like, this is great. And after that training, every day for five years, I did the morning 15-minute Korea set of breathing exercises. And most Saturdays, I would wake up in the middle of the night. It was like 6 a.m. or something. That is not a natural time for me. And I would drive to BV's house. And uh, there'd be a group of maybe 20 entrepreneurs, very successful people. And we'd mm-hmm. all go there and listen to a tape of Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. I'm not kidding. Like, I actually did this. And, and we, someone would lead the session, and we'd all do this you know, one-hour breathing session. And when you were done, it was like you did ayahuasca or something. Um, 
my friend Prabhakar, <laughs> he's like, Dave, I can't explain why this works, but I feel like I took a mental shower and my brain works better all week if I do this. So I just keep showing up. And, and that I feel like I took a mental shower is a really good description. And that's why I did it every day for five years because it worked. And I quit doing it because I, I, I have all sorts of other breathing technologies. And I still sometimes will do the, the breathing poses. I don't have a, a regular morning breathing practice, partly because I have kids. Once you have young kids, they screw up all your morning practices because they have a wake-up detector. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you wake up, they'll wake up. And you're like, well, I was going to breathe, but now I'm going to play with you. Uh, but anyway, I, that, so it wasn't that I quit cause it quit working. It just quit cause my kids distracted me, but I wanted to just share that story with listeners because you don't do something for five years unless you're getting serious benefits from it and, and to get to reconnect with you, to get to interview you today and to get to read your book and, and write the forward. It, it was an honor because it actually made a difference in my own path of, of self-awareness, which is pretty cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's interesting, you know, going back to your earlier point, I was that left brain lawyer. And there's this misnomer that if you're from India, you meditate or you do yoga. Actually, to your point, 20 years ago, the word yoga was woo-woo. Like, what are you talking about? People thought it's a, you know, laying on a bed of nails or something. Even even in India, you're saying? Or in the West? Even in India. Yes, exactly. Even in India. Only yeah. the sadhus would do that, right? <laughs> That's right. And And as a young lawyer, prosecutor, I'm not interested in doing what my great grandparents did. You know, we didn't come to America, so we sit and meditate. It kind of has the same sort of connotation that a lot of people that that you described earlier might have. Like, well, no, I'm I'm in the West, and that's better than all that other stuff. So when I walked in that weekend accidentally, it was entirely through the left brain analysis and dissecting and judging and so on and so forth. And I remember... Shri Shri at the end of the course leaning into like the chair where I was sitting and saying, look, you've done it your way this t- this long. The only real science is you try it and see <laughs> what happens. And the, the amazing thing for me was I went to work Monday morning and I was getting the job done in quarter the time. If it took me four hours to analyze, decipher, sort of put all my evidence and case together, interview witnesses. I had cut it down to an hour. I was finishing my work at three o'clock in the afternoon, as opposed to seven, seven thirty when I would drag myself out of the office, because my mind had come into a place of focus and clarity and, and optimizing that I hadn't known before. And what happened? It's just simple extra mental chatter had settled down through this use of breath as an exercise. You know, it wasn't about focus. It wasn't about concentration. Just use it as an exercise in a particular way and you will transform how you think, feel, and act. You optimize your mental as well as your physical dimensions of of life, you know, your operating system. And so I became greedy and I went on to do more. And that's how I got further involved in this, you know? So, so I have you on record saying that greed is why you do Art of Living? Well, I started that way for sure, you know? Not really. And, and, no, and, and perhaps today it's about wanting to really spread a message that's really needed given what's happening in the world today. I mean, it's crazy out there. So, it, yeah, it, you know? It is, and it's also true. 
I've had the pleasure uh, because of of your training and all to meet uh, Shri Sri Ravi Shankar, and he is you know, tens of millions of followers and uh, is you know a, a guru of guru uh, kind of guy. And he sleeps two hours a night and travels all the time and has mystical powers if anyone on earth does. And when you talk to him, he's got that kind of unusual presence and look in his eye and. And if people have had a chance to go you know, get a hug from the hugging saint, uh, what's her name, Amma? Amma? Amma, yeah, Amma. Amma. Uh, she has a kind of a similar vibe. And and if you meet, you know, a, a great, I've uh, met the, the Panchen Lama, there's a, a vibe that these kind of spiritual leaders have. And, and you can feel it. And it actually affects your energy in some way. So I, I can imagine him leaning into you and saying, you know, try something and see if it works which is kind of obvious advice, but it was what you needed to hear as an engineer. And what I needed to hear too, just say, I'm going to experiment. All the stuff that was supposed to work, I'm still tired, I'm still anxious, I'm pissed off, and I'm fat. So I got nothing to lose <laughs> by trying something new, right? Yes. Um, and, if, and if what you're doing works, then you should keep doing it. But most people are realizing that some of what they're doing isn't working because they haven't done what they wanted. But that you put something in your book that I want to dig in on. Because you say we've all been fed a great lie and it's that we have to effort, we have to work hard and think hard in order to do or have anything great in our lives. And all of the things that I found had the biggest difference for me, they seemed to make everything I do easier, including art of living, including breathing, including meditation in all of its forms. Why is it that we believe that we have this lie, that we have to work hard, we have to think hard, we have to struggle? Well, I guess it's a, curious question. I get asked that question a lot. And my answer often is, it's our education system. Somehow, <laughs> we're taught only to deal with the intellect. You know, meditation is really about the ability to perceive things as they are. And our entire education system is entirely bent, built on labeling and memorizing the labels. So just for a moment, if I may, you know that Vedanta breaks the mental faculty or mental optimizing on three levels, perception, intellect, and memory. When we're born, we simply perceive. We could call that a state of meditation, being present, alert, aware, tuned in, but not using the intellect, meaning analyzing, dissecting, judging, right, wrong, should be, should not be, and labeling everything. But what do we do from the time we're, we're like one years old? Parents want to give the extra edge in life, and they start teaching the kids, look, 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 apple, one, red, box. And we're so proud of it because all we're doing is showing them pictures and asking kids to label everything until they have it stored in their memory. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but probably from the age of two on, all of our education is built around memorizing the labels and then relabeling and rememorizing and meditation, biohacking, all the things that we're talking about here, breathing and so on, is really about enhancing the quality to perceive, to be, to see what is in front of us, taking the data in in such a way that we enter a state of flow rather than a state of conditioned response through the label and memory. And so I think that's the biggest challenge is that we really don't train from a young age to perceive. We simply train to label and to memorize. That's a really profound difference. And in all the teachings that I've had from the different 
traditions and even modern psychology and psychiatry and neuroscience and all, those three categories you have, well, your perception can be very flawed. And, and I know very well, because I've, I've seen it in myself and in others, if there's something that's too scary to perceive, you will not see it. it you're, some part of you will edit it out of your awareness unless you've done the training to, to not allow that to happen. So mm-hmm. let's say something makes it through the filters that keep you from seeing the things that you really don't want to see, like criticism or failure, stuff like mm-hmm. that. And then you have intellect, okay? Are you willing and able to think about it and process it correctly? And I'm just going to be straightforward. I do not believe that all people are created equal. Some people are smarter than others. <laughs> it just happens that way. Mm-hmm. And that's okay too, right? So maybe you have more intellect, maybe you have less. And then memory. It's also entirely possible that you won't remember some things and especially the scary things that you didn't want to perceive in the first place, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does the practice that you describe in your book, uh, how does that fix or improve or modify any of those three behaviors around perceiving things better, processing them better, and remembering them better? So if I may, it's true that going backwards a little bit, an event, fearful, unpleasant event can happen that we don't remember. However, that doesn't mean it's not stored in the hard drive somewhere. That is very true. Right. So it could be stored somewhere. And then in terms of the intellect, we can kind of link it to this notion of, you know, sometimes you're working on your computer you have a file open and maybe 10 other files open in the background that you opened a day ago, a week ago, maybe a month ago. Similarly, we as a hard drive are currently working on a file that's in front of us. In this moment, I'm talking to you. The listeners are listening to us. And yet a hundred other files are open in the background. And your mind, your intellect, your memory unknowingly is constantly activating them, processing them, judging, analysis. And the the current data that's in front of us is being affected. It's slowing down our hard drive. It's creating a little less efficiency. And if there's too many files open, the computer crashes, the battery gets drained. And so what I'm talking about, what you learned, what we're discussing here are tools and techniques that up-level the energy so much that naturally, number one, we find the computer works better. You're more efficient. You're more clear. You're really working on the file that's in front of you. It's a way to close the unnecessary tabs that are open in the background that we're not aware of. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And for people who still have a computer instead of just a phone and a tablet, <laughs> you might notice if you have all the tabs open, the fan turns on and the battery drains more than it did before. Mm-hmm. I really know, having written a book about energy production in the brain, it's the same electrons in your in your computer that power your brain. Yes. Um, and the source of the electrons is a little bit different, whether they come from food or burning coal or something, but same basic idea. And if you're wasting a bunch of these with open tabs that cause your battery to be depleted in your laptop, it's not that hard to think that the same thing could be happening in your brain. And that means if you get a bigger battery, you plug it in, that's called eating, uh, or uh, you know, you you do things that just cause you to waste less, the amount of struggle goes down. And mm-hmm. and that's what comes through in your writing that a lot of people don't don't 
see, even people who are pretty darn bulletproof, I, I people ask me this all the time, Dave, what do you struggle with the most? And and I'm like, I actually don't struggle with things. <laughs> like I either do them or I don't do them. I might do them or that, fail. Well, but, that's, that's the yeah. amazing thing. I do it or I don't do it. But most people spend time in the middle. I don't think we realize it. Our biggest energy hog is our thinking frontal cortex. It's nonstop producing thoughts. I once heard Deepak Chopra say something like, men have about 80,000 thoughts in in eight hours and women have, I'm sorry, it's the other way, 60,000 thoughts for men and 80,000 thoughts for women. Emotions generate a lot more thinking. And if we think that all those thoughts are useful or that we use them in a day, we're so mistaken. It's all reruns just repeating itself. And that is what reduces the optimizing. And the one simple thing that people haven't necessarily always connected the dots to is the higher your energy, the less your thinking mind functions and more your intuitive, insightful, perceptive system kicks into gear. The less we operate from memory and the more from what's in front of us, the flow. And so that's a, a function of how much energy we have, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. It, it's interesting because the way the body makes energy... Oh, actually, before we even get into that, um, you talked about those 60,000 or 80,000 thoughts mm-hmm. uh, that people have. That was per minute? No, it's okay. in about eight hours. In eight hours, okay. Eight hours. This is super rough, non-scientific math, uh, but I would guess that about for the average person who hasn't done much uh, awareness work probably 40 percent of the thoughts are about stuff you're anxious about stuff that you're subconsciously afraid of things that might be a threat like oh what is that person thinking about me you know does my butt look big in these jeans uh things like that 30 percent of the thoughts would be about what's for lunch i'm really hungry what am i going to have for dinner and should i eat that potato chip and if i do or don't am i a bad person uh, and then the other thoughts would be uh, about uh, people naked. Um, and, <laughs> and this is based on just cellular biology, because this is what all animals think about, like not getting eaten, not starving and reproducing the species. Like It's just it's in there and it's right. mostly garbage. And then if there's anything left over in the animals or in us, it's like, oh, how do I form a biofilm? How do I be a good member of my ant colony or a, a herd, of the, a, a member of the herd or the flock? Or in our case, you know, how do I be a contributing member of society? But it's like we worry about all the other stuff and a lot of it's swirling around. We're not that aware of it, but it sucks all that energy. So when we talk about having more energy, are you talking about having more energy because you wasted less or more energy because you're actually bringing air in with these crazy breathing exercises that make, I mean, our electrons are air plus food. So is it the breathing or is it the reduction of noise that helps? It's both. Okay. It's both. You want to, it's, you know, look, you're walking around out there somewhere and you suddenly see on your cell phone, the 10% battery light. What's the first thing you do? You want to plug in, mm-hmm. bring in energy. But if that's not possible, <laughs> then you want to close the extra apps so you don't drain energy. So you, yeah. you need to do both. I remember uh, there's a, a, a technique that I learned in your training, and I don't remember its name, but it, it's when there's something that really bothers you. Um, you're like, like go into a bathroom or away from people, and you like make a fist and hold it above your head and kind of like sock yourself in the solar plexus and go like, hmm. uh, what's that called? So, so there is a pre- practice or the breathing technique. It's a quick, calm breath. Yes. 
you don't need to suck yourself anywhere. <laughs> All you really need to do is exhale through the nose with the sound, hmm. Okay. As crazy as it sounds, we make that sound when we can't remember something. You'll see that kids make that sound, hmm, like after they've been upset in very simple ways. Like when I was in Bahia in Brazil, I was watching two women struggling and fighting about something. And one of them sort of put her hands on her hip and said, hmm, I've had enough and turned around and walked away. We make this sound when we're very sick in a hospital. You'll notice we make the sound, hmm. And this is an ancient biohack. On an exhale, with that sound, what you're doing is sort of sending a, a vibration at the pituitary gland. It calms the entire nervous system down. I, I yeah. do remember there was a time, going back at least a decade, uh, I was part of a company that was having uh, some, we basically had a layoff. Um, it was a publicly traded company. And I was a member of the senior leadership team. And I went in and I said, you know, if we were going to get rid of one of us, it should be me because I have really good people working for me and you could survive without me. So I'm fine if you want to do it. But since I'm planning the layoff for the company, like just you know, do me the courtesy of telling me. And the answer was over my dead body. So I'm like, okay, pretty sure I have a job. The next day, they're like, oh yeah, you are on the list. And I'm like, what? And I was, <laughs> I was pissed. Like It was just like, I was okay with being on the list of people who were getting let go. I was just pissed that they were like deceitful about it. Right. So right. I, I went into the bathroom and did my hmm breath. So I just wanted to tell anyone who knows what company that was. Yes, I was in the bathroom going hmm, uh, and it made me feel better. So there. Uh, but I, I did learn that. I wanted you to know because I think you'd find it funny if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Quick calm breath. I actually used it. Um, it's a story just like yours. So I did the weekend course. That's the moment when Sri Sri, the, the master, leaned in and said, just try it, because I found it a little ridiculous. Some weeks later, while I was in court, you know, a new lawyer, there's a tendency for judges to sort of initiate the new attorney. <laughs> and I announced a case ready. And it was a, a gang case in Los Angeles. And my witness basically disappeared in the middle of whatever goes on in a courtroom. And he said, let's go, Miss Patel. And the witness wasn't there. And he started screaming at me, you know, and in my head, I was really thinking, if you were in a parking lot and I was driving, I'd want to accelerate towards you. <laughs> I was really furious at the insults he was throwing out. And suddenly I leaned across. The court reporter had a tissue box right there. I pulled the tissue out and I just went, hmm. <clears throat> <laughs> I did it maybe three times and I noticed that my mind steadied itself. It was as if I was looking through what was in front of me. I was hearing him, but present rather than engaged through my intellect and the judgment of myself or the situation or him for that matter. So you talked about a mental shower. What I know is vital force is one of the fastest way to have mental hygiene. We spend a lot of time on physical hygiene, dental hygiene, grooming. Imagine not combing your hair for 20 years. Who does that? Very few people do that. And not pulling out the knots in your head, all the should have, would have, could have, why didn't this happen, how could it have happened, not knowing how to get out of your head is lack of hygiene. And that's what we're talking about really here, optimizing by taking short pauses maybe 10 minutes a day in the morning if you want to, or short pauses through the day, two-minute pauses to just do mental hygiene. That's all. 
You talk about something else that I kind of like in, in your book. You're really straightforward. You say people often make the mistake of classifying your work as, as a kind of self-help, but it's not that. And you're saying it's not that because there's nothing to fix because the Vedic tradition is that we weren't born flawed. We were born complete, powerful, connected, joyful, vibrant, and creative. So I kind of like it that this is not self-help. It's not self-improvement, but you say it's about self-realization. Most of us in the West would say self-realization, self-improvement, self-help, they're all the same thing. So why why do you care if it's self-realization versus self-improvement? So we're talking about self-realization, meaning beyond your conditioned mind, who you are. Look, when we're born, we're not born flawed. We're really whole, loving, connected, thriving, confident beings. We perceive, we connect we care, we live, we love. And then slowly what ends up happening is events of life, normal. We learn things, normal. We categorize things, we judge things. It's all normal, it's part of life. But then that becomes a veil to the core essence of who we are. And so a lot of self-help is about fixing the conditioned responses, Mm -hmm. the conditioned minds, what should be, what could be, what's right, what's wrong. And really, Vedanta says the world is made up of opposites. Both things coexist. The moment you get that, then you've gone out of self-help into self-awareness. You've now started to enter the realm of who am I at my core? And then it's about self-optimizing, not fixing. Those are two different things. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And the idea that you've got a lot of stuff in there and unleashing that is different than fixing. All right. I, I would yes. agree with you there. Yeah. One of the things that took a little bit of adjusting for me as I was reading through the book is you talk about vital force, you know, which is the title, but there's also life force, life energy, and Shakti. And mm-hmm. and you're saying that they all mean the same thing in the book. But then you tie it back to the Vedic tradition where I'm a little bit confused, even though I'm pretty knowledgeable on this stuff, there's Vedic, there's Vedanta, Vedanta. there's Prana. And then, of course, people who talk about Shakti in the same sentence will say, I also have my chi and my chi is stuck in my second chakra. So <laughs> walk me through all this language that uh, I know I'm mixing Chinese and, 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 it's okay. and, and, and it's things fine. there, but, but yeah. in the West, these are all kind of in a mushy bucket. Can you draw some clear boundaries between all these things for us? Absolutely. So if I had to use, um, just, just to stick to science for a moment, we could put all those categories into one word, meaning energy. But really, what is energy? In, in junior high school or high school, we would say it's the ability to move. So anything that's creating momentum, movement, we are calling prana or energy or chi or vital force. It's how you get it that makes a difference. So when you get this energy through the breath, we call it prana or chi. When we get this vital force through food, for instance, I'm not talking nutrition. I'm not talking ATP and ADP and caloric intake and carbohydrates and protein and fats. I'm talking vitality of a food. It's the unspoken thing. You get an apple, it's alive for a moment, two days, three days, whatever, if it's you know not been modified and, and so on. 
three days later, four days later, you see that it loses something. Hmm. It's true it'll lose nutritional value, but it loses vitality. By so, the way, this is why I live on a farm. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and food that's just picked is different. And, yeah. But it, and it's not a calories, it's something. It's okay. something else. And we call that vital force. So in food, we would call it life force. Yeah. When we're talking about movement of energy as in consciousness, intelligence versus intellect, we then call it the force, the field, or vital force in a sense. So if you're, if you're looking at it from uh, metaphorically, you have white light coming in, that's consciousness, field, force. And then the prism, the different colors of the light, depending on the source of it, you give it a different name. All right, so I'm still not clear. Vedanta versus Vedas uh, versus Shakti... Uh, versus so, chakras like walk me through those things okay so vedanta is a system just like the vedic system is vedic is a system that is in a sense much older vedanta is a word used in order to describe everything from yoga to this idea of advaitya meaning oneness principle and this system of vedanta gives us the tools, the techniques, the methodologies, the wisdom to biohack and optimize our inner life. How to be happy while we achieve whatever we have to do and want to do outside. How to enhance performance with a smile on our face rather than stress in our system. So that is a system. Okay, so Vedanta includes yoga, meditation, inner yes. thoughts, emotional work and all that. So exactly. it's kind of the the psychology and more practice from the Hindu scriptures. Yes. Okay. It is it is the ancient positive psychology if you will that biohacks and optimizes life. Okay. And by the way, I'm super in alignment when you talk about using this as biohacking and that might offend a traditional person from the biohacking field, given that it's all of an eight-year-old tradition, <laughs> or a traditional person you know, going back uh, uh, from an ancient lineage. I believe, and it's actually in the first chapter of, uh, of Superhuman, every single ancient lineage that still exists today, they're all working on the same thing, and biohacking's a part of that, which is, you know, what are the things that you can do to live longer, be happier, perform better, and to evolve. Yes. Life evolves, and, and it will always do that, and it doesn't matter if it's human life or any other kind of life. Um, that's what happens. And, and so a lot of the Western science that we we think are, is so rational, when you go back, these guys were alchemists. They were trying to figure out how to be immortal, and they were mm -hmm. doing weird rituals and burning hair and God knows what else to try and figure out what worked. And they were willing to do all sorts of stuff that we would think was crazy. I'm talking Francis Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, all the, the really famous Western science figures, they were batshit crazy by our modern standards because they were doing this ancient biohacking stuff based on their lineage. And there is a European lineage um, of, of this stuff. And it encompasses the spiritual side, the emotional side, and the rational, logical testing side. So that's why when you talk about this as ancient biohacking, I'm like, you go. That That is exactly right. But I think... Uh, a lot of times uh, people are sort of saying, well, how can that be? It, it devalues the old. Um, or if you're super into biohacking, maybe it devalues biohacking because that's ancient mm -hmm. mystical and this stuff is science. 
it's all science. Like you just do what works and that's science. And if it doesn't work, great. And if you don't like the story about why it works, make up a story about DNA. Great. (laughs) Make up a story about leprechauns. I don't care as long as it works. We'll find out why for real later. Right. Well, time has a way of expressing an idea in a very different way. And then we sort of boo-poo it because it doesn't get expressed in the, the sort of the vocabulary and the language we understand it. I mean, talk to a millennial or, you know, the next generation and so much of what we do seems obsolete to them. You know, it's another mindset. It's another culture. And ancient biohacking is nothing more than a language that's different, but is working on the same thing. How is it that we're going to optimize this eight, seven different dimensions of our life? We are not just our body. Our body is not inert matter. It's electric in nature. We're made up of atoms and electrons and protons. And, you know, there's so much conversation in terms of even the biome, the gut, how everything is impacting everything else. Our mind, our brain chemistry functions on electricity. It needs energy. And if you think about it, what came first? It's not the carrots and it's not the potatoes. There was movement and there was vitality and there was energy and there was steady, strong, joyful presence. That is a seven, eight pound baby. It's not all matter. It's a lot of electricity in motion And it's that energy that we're talking about in anything we do. What you're talking about with Bulletproof, what I'm talking about through Vedanta, is how do we maximize and access this other layer of life that we live in but haven't been taught how to use and and tap into. So so let's assume uh, that this vital force uh, that we talk about in the title of your book and Shakti, Chi, whatever you want to call it. Let's assume that it's real and measurable, and actually it is, uh, but a lot of people may, may not know that. What are the things that you can do to turn up your own vital force? So a couple of things. One is conserve the use of vital force, which means mind getting stuck in the past, in the future, and how to bring it in the present moment, right? We know human beings are hardwired with a negative bias. You talked about it a little earlier. Ten positive things happen, one negative thing. What sticks in our head is the negative. And that really drains our entire system, mind, body, emotion, spirit. Every aspect of us gets drained out. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is to up-level it. And there's a hundred different ways to do it. One of the things I talk about in the book, because it's the fastest way, there are many things I talk about in the book, but one is through breath. It's an answer right under our nose. Breathing doesn't just do CO2 and O2 exchange. There is something called, you've used the word, prana. It's another word for vital force, but when entering in and out through the breath, we call it prana. Qigong, when they're moving their system through the exercise, they call it qi, just another language for it. But every time you breathe in, you are breathing in, yes, O2 to impact the cellular structure of our body, but we're also breathing in this subtle energy which impacts the more subtle aspect of our existence, our mind, our emotions, our spirit, our essence, the the joyful state if you want. 
And so inhalation brings that in and an exhalation releases what we don't need. It is a way to detox, not just the body, CO2, lactic acid, pollution, etc. But it's also a way we detox something from the mind. Remember that we're a cohesive body-mind complex. And your breathing is a bridge between these two. It's the way we can energize the whole system, mind and body. Not just the surface of the mind, frontal cortex, but also the subconscious, the unconscious, the deeper layers of the mind. And so Vedanta really knows how to biohack through the breath ways to close the limbic brain files that are open. It is the way to move from sympathetic, fear, freeze, flight, stress response, which is getting stuck in the past and the future, to parasympathetic, relaxation, rest, calm, centeredness. And that's where perception is at its highest insight, intuition go up and conditioned response goes into the background. And so that is the the key that we're talking about. And you don't need focus. You don't need to concentrate. You know, you you were sharing the fact for the day earlier and you talked about how um, people find it difficult to focus on their breath and how certain amount of time based on who you are is what your meditation practice is because some people can focus on their breath for five minutes and some others for barely two breaths. The reason we go to meditation, number one, is so that we can enhance focus. And it's it's another thing I really discuss in the book to say if you use the breath as an exercise rather than as an instrument of attention, you up-level everything with a lot less effort, including focus and concentration. It becomes a result, not the practice. It's a big difference between the two. What about if you want to put life force into an apple that got picked a while ago or into another person who clearly um, is, is pretty much a douchebag? Um, <laughs> what, what do you do in those cases? Can you do that? You, you know what? I think that our intentionality has an enormous amount in terms of how we, uh, I'll use the word enliven, you know, alive versus enliven. Okay. So, so if, if you think about it, I think Joe Dispenza speaks about this a lot. It's one of the things I also talk about in the book. This notion of force, as in like Star Wars, or as in Matrix, or as in Kung Fu Panda, or as in Vital Force, it's not a mechanical, inanimate thing. It's animated. It has intelligence in it. Max Planck spoke about this. He says, if you want to understand the mystery of life, recognize it from the perspective of energy, vibration, frequency. Because in it, there is an intelligent mind. Look at the world. I mean, the planets have such intelligence. They're perfectly placed. One centimeter off the world implodes. If you look at the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, everything has a precision to it. Similarly, we as human beings are part of a system and there is an intelligence that surrounds us. And our intentionality has an enormous impact on how vibrant enlivened something is and 
if I may sort of go to this place, I'm sure you know about the observer effect. I'm talking on the the sort of the, the quantum realm, and I don't want to put yeah. science into Vedanta, but the observer effect clearly says the intentionality of the experimenter changes at the atomic level where it is. When you're observing it, it is present. When your intentionality is away, it exists as potentiality, as a wave, as energy. And that's what we're made up of. Our body is trillions of electrons and protons, and underneath that is a quantum field, but we've never given any attention or intentionality to it. And so that apple, if you have an awareness to it, you change the impact of that apple on your system. I think a lot of healing today revolves around that, putting attention on it. We call it positive thinking, but it's not about positive thinking on the surface level. It's from the innate, immersed level where we have an optimized outlook versus suppressing something underneath and thinking, oh, I'm positive, I'm positive. No, it just means you're negative and you're pushing things in the background. Okay, that, yeah. that makes sense. So you're saying I can look at the apple provide intentionality and it's going to have more life force? I think it will serve you better. That's what I'm okay. saying. You know, it, it will serve you better. It, if you're going to eat bad food, it's better to eat it with a positive state of mind than, oh my God, this is bad. Why am I doing it? And then eating it anyway. And, and there's also this amazing thing that so many different traditions tell you to do and it's pray over your food. Mm-hmm. Uh, like take a minute to be grateful for your food. Yes. Say grace. Uh, I know shamans who sit there and hold their hands over their food. And I've practiced those things over, you know, on and off. And, you know, there's probably something good, whether you're changing the food or you're changing the way your body responds to the food. I have no idea. Is it probably a beneficial practice? I would say based on my observations, yeah. And based on thousands of years of people doing it and not doing it and concluding, you know, this is a best practice, it probably is. So whether it's, well, do we know, is it putting life force in the food? I mean, can Trishi look at it with his x-ray vision and say, ah, that apple has been blessed by your gaze and therefore it has life force? Like, no, do we know that? <laughs> I, I don't think we know any of that. But okay. we do know that words have a huge impact, right? Whether they're words in our head or words that someone else says. We carry that energy, that that stress. You can use that word if you want to within us. You know, someone says few four little choice words put together point a finger and it sticks to us we go to bed with it so similarly this idea what you're talking about you sit in front of your food and you somehow calm your system down maybe because you're praying maybe because you're inviting something greater than what's happening that moment into your life maybe all we do is just rearrange for that moment the neurological pathways the you know neuroplasticity is not a uh, metaphysics conversation. It's actual physics and neuroscience and lifestyle, our thought process, how we eat, what we eat, when we eat, how we interrelate, how we connect has a direct impact on who we become physically, men mentally, and emotionally. Mm -hmm. All right. I, I, that matches my experience entirely. And I think you do a great job in Vital Force of explaining that, that subtle difference. And I still struggle a little bit, even though I don't really like struggling. We'll put it this way. There, there's still a question in my mind about 
about how much of this is, oh, it's placebo, or you know, I'm convincing myself that if I think positive thoughts about my food before I eat it, oh, it's gonna do more things to me. I'll be the first to say, I don't always do that. I, I put love into the coffee beans that I create. I put intentionality into those things, a lot of it. But there are times when I sit down and you know, I'm at an airport <laughs> or I'm mm-hmm. you know, opening a collagen bar. I know when we made the bar, I did something, but when I opened it and ate it, I might've just been on the phone and walking and I didn't really take a minute to like bless my food. In fact, I usually mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. So I, I still question that, like, like how, how important, how often, and I don't know that there ever will be a perfect answer that our best practice. So when, when I feel the urge, I'll do it. And when I don't, I don't, and I'm kind of okay either way. What would the Vedanta teaching about that be? So I think Vedanta would say it isn't about a positive thought or a negative thought. It would just simply say it's really about being there with what's in front of you. You could talk about it from a perspective of being aware or mindful. And what it's saying is if you have negative emotions, if there's a lot of negative thinking going on, they're going to say it simply means your nervous system is tired. It's depleted of energy, vital force. And so all you need to do is give the mind some rest and you will up-level that vital force and you'll naturally, naturally, without trying or doing, move towards a positive state of mind, a positive outlook. Look, a simple question, Dave, is when you're tired, when you didn't sleep well, because sleep is one of the ways we up-level vital force. We give the body rest and we up-level vital force, this, this organic bioenergy. That's what we're talking about here. And if you don't sleep well for two days, the third day you notice that everything seems a little more difficult. The struggle increases. Your outlook becomes less positive, more negative. People we love become, you know, oh God, I need a break from you today. We still love them. All that's happened is we become depleted of vitality. And so Vedanta would say up-level vitality and you will naturally become a more loving, present, kinder human being. They're not asking you to put mental effort. And that's why what you brought up earlier about hard work and, and all of that is, is a big lie. We don't need to work as hard when we're energetic. We work very hard and struggle and go uphill when we're running on empty. And that's what most people are doing, running on empty. Very well put. I really, uh, I, I think it, it's hard in one hour uh, to, to talk about the, the depths of, of all of the stuff that, that people learn if they spend you know, a couple days going deep on just the breathing exercises or awareness exercises and things like that. And it's one of those things that really did make a difference uh, for me in learning how to be more aware and more present. Uh, that's it's just worth, it's worth the time and the investment in doing that. Uh, and by stacking awareness with breathing exercises, I think there's there's added impact, and it's also a time saver. <laughs> Just by doing yep. them together, uh, it it saves you energy. Uh, I I have one further question for you uh, mm-hmm. as we come up on the end of the interview. I just wrote a book about living to at least 180. Because mm-hmm. actually, if you look back through the ancient Hindu writings, there's people who have done that before. <laughs> actually, you know how we celebrate 
50 years in this country as like the middle big birthday. Um, It still goes on. The practice, particularly in the south of India, they celebrate 60 because the average lifespan in ancient times was 120. So when someone turns 60, it is a huge birthday because that's considered the middle of your life cycle. And that was just, you know, three, four thousand years ago. If you look at scriptures older than that, we lived much longer. Yeah. Much longer. In fact, there's some crazy stuff out there that I've come across that goes through the entire set of recorded history from multiple uh, histories. Anywhere there's there's evidence looking at a, a relative decline from 800 years to 400 years to 200 years to 100 years. Mm-hmm. based on a kind of linear progression that matches from different parts of the world that presumably weren't talking to each other. And I mean, we could go really into interesting biochemistry and you know, four potential reasons that that would be happening. But you know, how would we know if, if 2000 years ago, people lived some amount of time? Cause we see it written down and we just say, Oh, they were lying. And you know, they also said they had giants and dragons and correct. <laughs> like, <laughs> Who how, knows? Right. But my question for you is this, how long do you think you're going to live? I mean, you, you've done all the altered states exploration. I know 180 because of math. I don't know if I'm going to actually live that long or longer. I just think it's possible, and that's my intention. So I've had my 25% birthday just happen. But what what's your number? Is it? Was it I, I don't think I have a number. I'm okay. I'm 58 now. Okay. And for me, what's very important is that it's not how long I live; it's how I live. Mm-hmm. You, you know. So there are a lot of people who are you know, 90 something years old or 20 something years old. And you'd be surprised that the 20 year old is walking around on autopilot, basically a zombie, not really vibrant, not alive, not going for it, not risking, not connecting, just somehow managing to get through what they have to, you know, playing it safe in life. It's a question I ask, you may or may not remember it from the book, but I ask people, are you committed in your life and choose because you're committed to being happy, A, or are you committed and making choices in your life because you want to make sure you're not unhappy, something uncomfortable doesn't happen? And we like to think we're A, but most people are in B category. And if, if what you're talking about and what you're asking is committed to living out of the A zone, I'm committed, I'm going to live, I'm alive. And I think that makes us also live more years, not just how well we live, but how long we live, both together. Very well put. Rajshree Patel, your new book is Vital Force, and you certainly are a vital force or maybe a guided missile of meditation, as you've just been named. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio today. Thank you for writing Vital Force. And if you're listening to the show and you're saying, I don't know if I should read this or not, I'll just tell you, I, I get a lot of invitations to write forwards for books. I mean, a lot, way more than I could possibly fulfill and still have a life. Uh, but I did choose to write the forward for Vital Force because it's a book worth reading. So I would highly encourage you to read it. And like always, if you leave a tip to your for your barista at the Bulletproof Coffee Shop, or if you cheat on me and you go to some other coffee shop and you leave them a tip too, that's good. But if you do that, do the same thing for an author. And the way you leave a tip for an author it's free. You just go to Amazon and leave a review and you can just give it some stars. You can make a one sentence comment. And I 
telling you, because I know Rajshree is going to look at those reviews and see how well did I do. And I look at reviews on my books. So take the time to read Vital Force and leave a review for it, and it'll make you a better person in both of those acts. Have a wonderful day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.